All right, so next up is the conference's final segment, which is a debate between one supporter and one opponent of the Jones Act. Before getting to that, I want just to say a brief words to provide a bit of background. The Jones Act is, as you've seen from the discussion today and some of the questions, a contentious topic uh, with strong feelings on both sides of the aisle. Supporters of the law publish op-eds and studies defending the Jones Act, while those of us favoring reform respond in kind. But there seems to be little direct interaction between the two sides or opportunities for supporters and opponents to hash out their differences. So we thought it would be useful to bring Jones Act supporters and opponents together so they could directly engage with one another. Those undecided on the issue, meanwhile, could make up their minds after hearing what both had to say. So toward the end, we came up with this segment of the conference, which is the debate. And originally, we had envisioned it as a 2v2 format. Uh, we quickly succeeded in finding two people willing to speak against the law, but it was a little trickier to find people who were willing to defend the Jones Act. It was no easy task. Uh, we sent out invitations to over two dozen supporters of the Jones Act, including the American Maritime Partnership, the Transportation Institute, the AFL-CIO's Transportation Trades Department, and the Metal Trades Department, as well as the Seafarers International Union of North America. In addition, we reached out to members of Congress on the record supporting the Jones Act, including Representative Duncan Hunter, Representative John Garamendi, Representative Don Young, and also Senator Brian Schatz. We received no responses from any of them. But with that said, I do want to extend a very much warm welcome and heartfelt thanks to George Landreth for being here, for his willingness to take part in today's debate, unlike the many others that we sent out invitations to. George is president of the Frontiers of Freedom Institute, a think tank which advocates for limited government, and he's the author of several op-eds on the Jones Act. And let me also note that George, unlike many of other supporters uh, that we've engaged with, is so enthusiastic uh, that he actually proactively volunteered to participate. So thank <laughs> you very much, George, for being here with us today. Taking the other side of the issue is Rob Cortell, currently CEO and chairman of NTELX. And for those of you who missed the previous panel, Rob is a former federal maritime commissioner and former heads of the Jones Act Reform Coalition. Uh, there are a few conversations about the Jones Act uh, in which Rob is not involved. Uh, so our thanks for him being a speaker on a previous panel and also to be in the debate. So thanks, Rob. Mm -hmm. And moderating the debate, meanwhile, is Brett Fortnum. He's the managing editor of Inside US Trade, and he's been with the publication for the last five years. The only rule I provided to Brett is that the debate has to wrap up in time for us to be at the reception to have some of Koloa rum. Uh, otherwise, it is completely his show. So without any further ado, Brett, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Inu, uh, and thanks for the opportunity uh, for this debate. Uh, we just have a, a couple quick reminders. Uh, if Everyone can check their cell phones, make sure they're on silent or vibrate. Um, we've, we're not looking for any interruptions. Um, we're going to have somewhat of a classic debate format. Um, we're going to give each speaker 10 minutes for an opening statement. Uh, and then I will have a series of questions for both. Um, we, I hope that each answer will be limited to four to five minutes. We'll give the other panelists uh, two, three-minute response, and then the person who received the question will be able to get the last word for about one minute. Um, so without further ado, let's uh, have a nice, clean fight, guys, and uh, let's enjoy. Uh, George, if you sure. do, the, do us the honors. Absolutely. 
Of course, my view is it's not going to be a fight, but we're just going to have a great conversation. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I will start off by saying, uh, one, thanks for inviting me. I'm, I, I appreciate the opportunity to be here. I also want to thank uh, both Brett and Rob for participating in this discussion. And I want to begin by saying that as someone who believes in small government and the power of free markets, I appreciate the work Cato does. And, and I agree with the vast majority of their positions. And when it comes to the maritime uh, the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, otherwise known as the Jones Act, um, I respectfully and vehemently disagree, but that's the point of having this conversation. But uh, so anyhow, <clears throat> I want to uh, jump in and, and I, I think generally detractors of it, in, in my view, rely upon a weak foundation. They often I th incorrectly claim that the Jones Act dramatically increases shipping costs. Um, I think they also will argue that it doesn't actually help our military defend the nation and that it does not do anything for our homeland security. And I think the facts will say otherwise on, on each of these topics. Now, um, the Merchant Marine Act of 1920, just to put in context very quickly, let's look at why it exists. Um, after World War I, Congress and the nation felt that it had been unprepared and decided they didn't want to be unprepared. So they uh, put in place the Jones Act. It was designed to make sure we had sufficient shipbuilding and so forth that we would be able to uh, be better prepared for conflicts in the future. Now, it applies to the movement of goods within the United States. And you probably have covered this some today, but I just want to make sure our ground rules and our, you know, if our, our terms of debate, if you are clear. Um, about 98% of the goods that come into the United States come in from, on foreign flagships. What they can't do, they can do that. What they can't do is then make other stops at ports. To do that, you have to be a US-built flagged uh, ship, and you also have to be a crew, uh, you know, crewed by Americans. I want to point out, this actually has its roots in our founding. This is not some new kind of you know, big government program. The first cabotage law was actually passed as the fourth act of the very first Congress. That Congress included many of the signers of the Declaration of Independence and the uh, Constitution. Uh, when it was uh, worked out. I think that's important because these were not big government types. Um, Adam Smith, the father of free markets, and uh, obviously a great uh, promoter of free trade, uh, supported the British version of the Jones Act. In The Wealth of Nations, he talks about it. It's the British Navigation Act. And he, had, he basically said it was important for defense because they would need sailors and they'd need the ability to ship and have a navy. So he saw a, 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 an important reason to have the Jones Act. Now, uh, you know, the question is, of course, does it significantly increase uh, the cost to consumers? And I would argue there's really no clear evidence of that. I understand that in theory, there can be some modest uh, costs, but, but they're hard to track. And the reason they are is because they're very small, and it's hard to see those kinds of movements. GAO report found that it was entirely unclear. And I think if you look at some of the cases, they say it's a, it's, it's a large difference. It's usually because they take the shipping rates from South Korea, and they compare them to our shipping rates, and they go, theirs are lower, so see, that's what we would get. And of course, if they start shipping within the United States, uh, they'll have to comply with U.S. laws, regulations, taxes, other things. So their prices will go up. So that's part of the problem with that approach or analysis. Now, I want to get to what I, why I think the Jones Act actually makes a lot of sense. I think it's important from a national security perspective. Um, we, if you look at what our, our, our various generals say, uh, at the time, then Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff said he was a supporter of the Jones Act. And he asked this question. 
He says, why would I tamper with that? Referring to the fact that it would make sure we have a, a vibrant shipbuilding industry and that we'd have these qualified mariners. And I think that's a very, very good question. Um, the uh, General McDo, similar message. Uh, he also points out that the sea lift capability is important and that uh, without that, they really can't supply and make sure their army is, uh, in, or not just our army, but our, our soldiers are uh, in, in the place they need to be and have the things that they need. Um, Coast Guard Commandant, he just stepped down, but uh, previously was the uh, Commandant. And he, of course, points out the Jones Act uh, eventually would lead, if, if it were to go away, you'd see our... our our shipbuilding industry go away, and then eventually our shipyards, and then finally our fleet would not have the things that it needs to prevail. So to me, that's important. History teaches this lesson. Just uh, remember, Napoleon left Paris with almost 700,000 troops, the finest army the world had ever seen, and uh, his military was superior to every uh, opponent they faced while marching towards Moscow but because they had a long supply chain that was not able to maintain itself, uh, they eventually, by the time they got back to Paris, were down to 27,000 troops who could fight. That's pretty amazing. And it changed the balance of power in Europe for the next 100 years. So uh, the point is, I think the Jones Act is important, and we probably shouldn't assume that it's just some silly, antiquated idea. Now, the Jones Act, I also believe, is taxpayer-friendly, and I'll explain why. If uh, the U.S. Navy has uh, all sorts of warships, they've got uh, submarines, they've got aircraft carriers, but what they don't have is a lot of ships that are designed to carry their goods to their troops. So when we mobilize, we need these ships. And to build that capability, uh, it has been estimated to be about a $65 billion proposition. But right now, we get that essentially at... Uh, at, at whatever nominal cost uh, we see in shipping rates. And it's, it's very important, and I think we have to realize that's, that's for real. Now, since September 11th, um, the Jones Act has taken on some other importance that it didn't used to have to us, quite frankly. And the writers of the, the act never intended it for it to do this for us, but it does. And that is it helps us with homeland security. Um, the Coast Guard points this out, that without the Jones Act, their job would be much more difficult. And the reason for that is actually very simple. We have a system where we have frontline ports that are used for international trade, and that's where we put most of our assets to protect the country and to make sure that we're keeping an eye on what's coming and going. Once you get inland and you're inside that defensive ring, we don't put a lot of assets. And so as a result, we rely on uh, our Jones Act ships. There's about 40,000 of them, and with their crews and their trained and their vetted, they are keeping an eye out for suspicious activity, and then um, that becomes an important part of this layered defense. Now, to put it in perspective, even academics, uh, you know, with maritime experience, I think make this case clearly. He points out that if you were to have foreign flag ships just sailing with an unknown crew anywhere in the U.S., up the Mississippi, for example, safety becomes a real problem from a national security perspective and a homeland security perspective. So, and of course, the Coast Guard points out that... Um, Without the Jones Act, it would leave us vulnerable to terrorist acts within our ports and waterways, and it would give them the means of transporting the terrorist and the material they need to do that. So, again, I, I feel like that's an important benefit we get from the Jones Act. Now, the border, uh, you know, the, the actual border in the south is about 2,000 miles. 
interestingly enough, we have more than 25,000 miles of navigable waters. And um, if you basically turn all of those into entry points, I'm not sure how you guard every possible entry point. So the Jones Act effectively becomes a virtual wall for these inland waterways and the holes that would exist there. And in fact, the, uh, the uh, Customs and Border uh, Protections, uh, uh, the Customs and Border Protection Jones Act Enforcement Division points that out. They refer to the Jones Act as a virtual wall. I think that's important. Now, part of the reason why this is important is because we do have an Achilles heel. There's a study done by the uh, Department of Homeland Security, um, and they determined that the Pollock, which is uh, by the Great Lakes, if it were damaged through some sort of attack, um, it could bring uh, a recession to the United States. Just that one act and uh, could cause 11 million people to be unemployed. And for those that kept their jobs and were lucky enough, they would see reduced economic opportunities because of the overall impact on the U.S. economy. So it's very important that uh, these uh, national security and homeland security uh, benefits not be just immediately dismissed. I, for example, am very happy to risk uh, buying T-shirts from an unreliable supplier and take my risk because we'll survive uh, that. But I don't want to get my missile defense from someone else that I can't rely on. I really want to make sure we're doing that. And I would argue expecting foreign ships and crews to protect America's heartland is just stupid. It just doesn't make any sense to me. So um, in conclusion, I just want to make um, or re reiterate a couple important points. One, our nation's founders and Adam Smith supported cabotage laws that are very much like the Jones Act for very similar reason, very similar reasons and rationales. And also, I'm very unwilling to give foreign governments, rogue actors, and terrorists the opportunity to have access to our heartland. I would like to keep, that keep them be outside the perimeter, as it were. And then, of course, uh, if they were to get inside, they can attack our infrastructure. They could certainly smuggle weapons of mass destruction and other things in. And I would argue it also makes Ill illegal immigration much easier to accomplish. And uh, so for a variety of reasons, it, I think it makes a lot of sense to have the Jones Act in place, particularly given uh, how efficiently it provides all of those benefits to us. So with that, I will conclude and we will uh, we'll hear from Rob. <laughs> all right. Yep. Well, I kind of hardly know where to begin. The, um, there's so many um, misdirections and uh, other pieces of that. I think many of you have heard me speak before. The reality is the Jones Act was not the 1920 Merchant Marine Act. The Merchant Marine Act of 1920 was actually a law, uh, as he said, intended to rebuild the fleet. The Merchant but the Jones Act in Section 27 uh, was actually, as we talked about earlier, an afterthought. Uh, not, no committee heard it. No one debated it on the floor. Uh, no one uh, debated it uh, before the vote. It was done solely to protect railroads operating uh, on the West, West Coast, uh, Senator Wesley Jones' constituents, from competition from foreign ships. And uh, from a purely economic standpoint, that's something that has been very effective. The Jones Act has essentially raised the cost of shipping above the cost of rail and trucks. So it has actually moved cargoes, as it was intended, from ships to rail. So uh, I think one of the big things people like to do in this business is sort of state 
a history that just didn't exist. So, it, you know, let me re recapitulate that. So basically, the Jones Act is not about national security. It never was intended. I'm, I'm really amused by the, um, the uh, reference to Adam Smith. Um, one of the big debates in the Congress is about the Navigation Acts, and one of the things which caused the revolution was the Navigation Acts because they so restricted trade with the colonies, and one of the things the founders decided was they were not going to do Navigation Acts. What they did do, uh, which was, I think Mike talked about earlier, is they did create a form of cabotage, which um, restricted shipping in between ports in the U.S., points at that time, to American flag ships. But the definition of American flag ships in those days was not that they had to be built in the United States and owned by, Ameri uh, by Americans, et cetera. So it was a very different set of, of qualifications. Um, I also think the, uh, the reference to to Napoleon is interesting too. Um, if you remember, there's a great chart of uh, the size of, it's used in data analytics. It's the, it talks about the size of Napoleon's army and it shows it starting out in France and Europe like this. And then as he moves through the continent, it gets smaller and smaller. So you're right, I, I forgot it was how many hundreds of thousands of troops may have been, I think it was eight or 900,000 troops ended up at about 18,000, but they were nowhere near where a ship could deliver cargo. So that was not their problem in their supply lines. They didn't have enough horses. They were in the middle of winter uh, and had nothing at all to do with ships. So it's a great example of supply line requirements, but it has nothing to do with ships. Um, the Jones Act, in fact, does raise the cost of consumer goods uh, in markets where it actually is in play. It does raise the cost of shipbuilding. We know that for a fact. We know it raises um, uh, numerous other associated costs and makes it impossible for certain businesses to actually compete. For example, timber. Uh, we used to have a very robust timber industry in the United States, and they were one of the leaders of the Jones Act Reform Coalition. And one of the reasons is because they could no longer ship timber on timber vessels because there were no timber vessels or ships, deep draft, self-propelled, over 1,000-ton ships um, to carry their timber. So they basically moved their, their timber growing operations offshore to foreign countries and they bring them back to the U.S. or what they had they would ship to Canada and now we have a trade dispute on Canada partly as a consequence of that. Um, uh, the, um, from the standpoint of, of showing that it does what it's purported to do, if, if you believe that it's intended to support the military, uh, for three reasons, which, we, again, we've discussed. It, it provides a lot of crew. It provides ships for those crews to sail on during peacetime. And it provides um, a shipbuilding to build ships in peacetime as opposed to um, simply for warships. Um, it fails the, the test there completely. Um, George mentioned there were 40,000 ships. In that term, I wrote it down, ships, in the U.S. fleet. They're not... 40,000 ships. There are probably 39,650 barges. There may be 300, close to 300 ships. And there may be 80, um, if there are that many, Jones Act ships. Ships are very different from barges. And, you know, one of the things that we mentioned earlier that is problematic for the customers in the Jones Act and, the, in fact, the entire American industry, maritime industry, is that this is an industry that doesn't care about its customers. It doesn't care what they want. So when a grain uh, operator wants to, a grain producer wants to put his ship on a grain ship, they offer him an oil tanker instead. 
because they don't have any grain carriers. When the cattlemen want a cattle ship uh, to carry the cattle to the mainland to the feedlots, uh, they put them in containers, half containers, because there are no longer any ships that can, are, are built to carry cattle. Um, and it's industry after industry after industry is like that as the fleet has shrunk. So um, why has it actually destroyed the fleet? Well, it's destroyed the fleet and it's destroyed the jobs with them um, because the restrictions have eliminated essentially a competitive market for shipbuilding uh, at one point. So an American ship, because we have no orders, because the costs are so high, it's a vicious cycle. American ship costs anywhere between three and eight times what a ship costs overseas. And we know that empirically. Uh, we know that American shipyards can't build large ships. They can build tugboats. They can build um, uh, service ships for, for um, oil rigs. And they can build barges competitively. But they can't build the big ships that we really need for trade, nor can they build the big ships we really need for the military. So uh, when you start looking and breaking out the costs of shipping, like in Hawaii, the biggest cost factor raising the cost of shipping is in this cost of the capital equipment, meaning the ship itself, which is many times the cost of the world market. And then after that is labor. Now, one of the, you know, there have been a lot of talk earlier about repealing the Jones Act, and there was a reference to the Jones Act Reform Coalition. The Jones Act Reform Coalition did not call for repealing the Jones Act. What actually it called for was treating this industry like every other transportation industry in the United States, meaning you can buy your equipment anywhere you want to buy it. You can, have, um, uh, you can be owned by anybody who wants to own it as long as it's an American corporation. To be an American corporation, you don't have to be an American. You just have to incorporate in the United States. Um, so... Anyway, that was, those are the key factors. But the Jones Act Reform Coalition basically said, you can buy your ships anywhere you want. Uh, you can um, finance them anywhere you want. Um, you have to register in the US if you're going to do business here, like any other US corporation. When you're doing business in the US, you have to use US labor. Uh, and oh, by the way, yeah, of course you have to obey OSHA and all the other requirements. Um, but, oh, by the way, American requirements are not quite as tough as requirements in the shipping industry anywhere else on the planet. So, uh, and we are all signatories to international treaties, and the U.S. actually had to upgrade its standards when we signed those, those treaties. Um, we do have occasionally different shipbuilding standards, but they're really things like putting a fire hydrant on this side of the ship versus on that side of the ship. There's, you can't if you have any engagement in shipbuilding, you really can't find anything substantial between our ships and their ships or anybody else's ships on that, that basis. Um, I thought the other thing that was pretty interesting is this whole discussion about homeland security. And I actually know a little bit about homeland security. I was the guy who figured out that ocean shipping containers could be weaponized and came up with a paradigm that we now use, which is not to physically inspect containers, but to use the data associated with containers. And we were one of the early companies to go into uh, predictive analytics, uh, you know, uh, artificial intelligence, and we uh, created systems, and the government uses this paradigm of taking the data, running analysis against it to figure out who the likely bad actors are, and then targeting those people for work. You know, uh, foreign flag ships travel up the Mississippi every day. They travel into the Great Lakes. 
They travel all the rivers of our country. They are in our ports. 98%, and you said this, of the capacity um, the, uh, of the trade with the United States is on foreign ships. They don't sit offshore, nor do their crews. They come, up, they come into the ports. They come into the cities. The crews get off the ship. They walk all around. They, they are licensed, just like ours are licensed. Um, so, so the notion that this Homeland Sec the Secretary of Homeland Security said that this is a wall or a barrier is intellectually completely ludicrous and she should be fired. And she probably will be, I hate to tell you. Um, but um, anyway, so you know, to me, this is really an example of what's wrong with the so-called conversation. Um, a lot of assertions that are misleading and have nothing to do with fact a lot of so-called facts, but they aren't the full facts. You know, one of the things you hear frequently is that um, a quarter million jobs in the maritime industry are dependent on the Jones Act. Well, no, they're not. There may be a quarter million people operating in U.S. ports. You know, the guys putting the car cargo on, running the, um, the trains back and forth, and these, all of these kinds of things. Remember, 98% of what comes in and out of an American port is foreign. So they're serving the foreign flagships. The remaining 2% gets you about 4,800 people. In the passenger service industry, it's about 650 people. Actually, in the Jones Act segment, it used to be maybe 30 years ago. It's probably almost no one today. Uh, of course, the passenger industry is a big industry, but those are also all foreign-owned ships. So if you, if you continue down the path of... Uh, of the Jones Act, what you're going to see is the complete elimination of the U.S. Merchant Marine uh, of, uh, because it will continue to get more and more expensive. Shipbuilding on the commercial side will continue to decline as it has now for, for 65 years. Um, so you, you really do have to reform it. And the way to do that is deal with shipbuilding and just make them comply with everything else all the rest of us do in daily life. Before I, I get to the questions, um, the reason uh, Kato reached out to me is because I'm decidedly undecided on the Jones Act. Um, so I, I, I plan to maintain that post-debate, but we'll, we'll see how you guys do. Um, so the first question I have for you, George, is you know, one of the, the lovely topics that uh, the Trump administration has um, made so interesting is steel and aluminum. Uh, and they are putting tariffs on on the basis of um, national security. How is the how, how is protecting the shipping industry in the name of national security different than you know putting tariffs on steel and aluminum? Well, I think it it's going to depend on on on, on details, quite frankly. A um, couple things. One, I think we have to have an, an industry now. Um, it, Rob said we we can't build big ships. That I don't know. To me, that's like saying we can't land on the moon. Because I've been on one in the last year that was in the process of being built, and it was a huge ship. It it dwarfed you know aircraft carrier types, and it was it was quite large. So um, we can build them, and we do build them. Um, the Jones Act isn't designed to make sure we build uh, and have that we can compete with countries like Korea that heavily subsidize their industries. That's the Jones Act isn't why we're suffering. It's because as other nations have decided to make it part of their industrial policy to 
heavily subsidized, it becomes more and more difficult to compete with that. And the point of the Jones Act, in my view, is not to make sure that America is the number one producer of ships in terms of uh, the quantity of, of the ships we produce. It's to guarantee that we have the capacity to build and repair ships. And as long as we have that capacity, I think it doesn't matter whether or not we're building most or only some of the ships that are out there. Um, I mentioned the 40,000 ships or vessels. Um, and you'll notice I didn't mention it to suggest we had 40,000 ships that we're going to engage with the military. I was using it to point out it was a part of our homeland security. And there was this 40,000 ships or boats or whatever you want to call them, vessels, in America's waters with crew who are eyes and ears. That was the point of that. So I'm not sure why he drew that distinction other than the fact that, that was just an, an attempt to play a gotcha game because my point still stands. There's <laughs> a lot of boats out there in the water with Americans on it who've been trained and vetted and they have their eyes and their ears open. Um, but, and I would argue that the, the, so I'm not a fan of tariffs in general. I think that you know, if, if it's a short-term plan to get a free trade agreement, I can abide by it. But if it just turns into a trade war, that just strikes me as a tax on consumers. Um, and I would argue that with the Jones Act, what you get is some theoretical and very modest uh, increase in certain shipping costs and things like that. But I find it hard to believe that um, all these generals, admirals, and, uh, and the like are all wrong. They're just idiots, and other people know better. Uh, these are people who make it their business. And, uh, you know, even on the question of, uh, again, I think I don't, it's interesting the kind of the attempt to play gotcha. I didn't suggest that Napoleon needed ships. What I suggested was that story illustrates the importance of supply chain. And it illustrates why a military would be concerned about supplying its army. I didn't suggest that it illustrated he needed more ships. But again, if you want to play a game where you put words in people's mouths, you can do that. I was hoping we'd have a serious conversation, not a gotcha game. Rob, would you like to respond? Sure. I, see, I, I think the issue on a lot of this, it is a serious conversation. There are numerous serious studies which actually uh, calculate a real cost to the Jones Act. Uh, in Hawaii, for example, we calculated that the cost of the Jones Act 30 years ago on the city of Honolulu alone was about a billion dollars a year. Um, we calculated, and other, uh, the International Trade Commission, you, you go out through their studies, it was about two cents per gallon of gas. So you can go study after study. There is a real cost and, um, uh, on consumers. Uh, but there is a bigger issue, and you yourself said this earlier, which is why should um, we pay for these tariffs? Um, well, I would say why should we pay for a subsidy for a single industry, which is the Jones Act industry? Um, they have a protected market. Um, it's a market in which the players have continued to shrink um, because people have done workarounds to get out from under it, except where they can't, like Hawaii and Puerto Rico and, and Guam and um, you know, certain other coastal cities and places like that. So, and certain industries, which I enumerated, timber and, and, uh, uh, and um, metals and uh, 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 the agriculture industry and on and on and on. So you have a long list. So, so it is a real cost. And um, they're not theoretical studies, they're actual studies. Uh, there was a study done recently in Puerto Rico that looked at a handful, maybe six, um, six items in a market basket, and it was done by a Jones Act-funded group, and they found uh, no differences in prices whatsoever in things like, I think, ice cream or something. But when you actually go back and look at the market basket, the reality is it's an immense difference in cost 
you know, piece by piece by piece, and you take the whole market basket. So there, there are fraudulent studies, and they're largely funded by the cabbage people. And then there are real studies, like the ITC does and has done. And, of course, they got caught in the political cycle of this, too. So they backed away because they were accused by political forces. So, and the last point on the admirals, I don't know whether those guys were active duty at the time or not, but... Um, the people was. on the other side of this hire an awful lot of people, a nice chunk of change to say this. And honestly, they don't know anything about the Jones Act. They know what they're told and they know what they're supposed to say because the politicians in the government say, oh, we're in favor of the Jones Act because we get contributions, basically. Okay, and a last point? Well, one, the, the generals I uh, cited were all active when they said that, and most of them are currently active. Only General uh, Admiral Zumwalt, who's uh, from the Coast Guard, is just recently retired. Um, I, there's a GAO study that went through the cost, and basically it concluded that most of them had s s fatal flaws in them, and it was impossible to determine uh, cost issues. Now, I understand, with some training in economics, there is a cost impact, but I think it's minimized, and generally it's overstated. Um, earlier, I think you used the phrase, it could cost as much as eight times as much to build a ship. People I've talked to and uh, other experts I've seen have said it's well less than half that. Uh, that's still a lot there. But, uh, but the point is, I think it's, it's fashionable to overstate things. And uh, um, again, the GAO study came out and said it was pretty uh, uh, just impossible to determine what those costs were. Um, I also think if you look at the... Um, you know, cost of living and things like that in places like uh, um, Puerto Rico. You have um, nearby islands that are not affected by the Jones Act that have higher cost of livings and their, you know, basket of goods are more expensive. So my point is, I think it's a complicated question. And I am very unwilling. It's easy to say that these generals all don't know what they're talking about, but uh, General McDo, for example, pointed out that the Jones Act was very important in the effort to supply uh, our troops in the, in the Middle East, and uh, particularly in the first Gulf War when uh, we had the you know, kind of 100-hour battle. And that without that, they wouldn't have been successful. Okay. So I, you know, maybe, maybe he's a complete idiot. I kind of doubt it. I'm, I'm unwilling to come to that conclusion All right. unless I see real evidence of it. I'm not just going to assert it. All right. To, so now for Rob. Um, if, moder if repealing or um, changing the, the, the Jones Act yeah. uh, would invite foreign competition into the marketplace, could you give us any guarantee that that would not cost U.S. jobs? So, so, the, so the premise is that it's going to be foreign competition, but that's not necessarily true either. Um, if, if Americans could buy ships on the world market at a world market price, Americans could just as well build a fleet or create a fleet. And my assumption is Americans will be doing that. So, um, but, but I would ask you a different way, which is why don't we make sure that the railroads have to buy only uh, American-built railroad trains? Why don't we make sure the airlines have to build, buy only American-built airlines, airplanes? Why don't we make sure that cars can only be built in the United States and sold to Americans. So we don't live in that kind of a world, and as an economist, George knows that's a bad thing. Um, what you want is uh, you want to be uh, in a marketplace, a global market, where people can compete on what they do best. And, you know, there's a whole economic theory built around that. So, um, But I'm, I'm going to take one point of order here, which is George asserted that the general asserted 
that in the Gulf War we couldn't have survived without the Jones Act. There were 460-some ship trips to the Middle East. Roughly 25% were American flagships, commercial flagships. Um, one ship out of 460 was a Jones Act barge row-row pulled off the beach in the last couple days of the war. So the Jones Act had almost nothing to do with it whatsoever. Um, the, we would not have been able to make the, the war effort without foreign ships coming in who, who essentially rescued us. It was, it was Navy, it was gray hull and prepositioned and, um, and, uh, and primarily foreign ships that took most of what went into the Gulf during the war and took it back out at the end. So, and, and that was because the American ships didn't want to take ships out of service because they didn't have any capacity, so they would lose market share. So they took a really smart commercial point of view in that, but it wasn't very good for American security. So if the general really believes that, he, he needs to be re-educated about the facts. And Transcom wrote a, a whole piece on this, so you know a big study about that thick, which they revised at the request of the maritime unions, but they still would support my point on this. So your premise, I think, is not what would happen. The reality is most of our trade is driven by foreigners today. You know, it's mainly on foreign ships, and it's mainly delivered by foreign sailors. We're not doing anything to build a fleet. We've actually destroyed our fleet. We made shipping so expensive that people would rather move their goods on railroads and trucks. George, would you like to respond? Well, again, um, I'm pretty sure that uh, General McDo is not stupid, and I don't think he's he was misinformed. He, he was, said he was misinformed. He's, he's in charge of transportation. That's his whole responsibility. That was the wing of the military that he had purview over. And so I, I put stock in what he has to say. Um, I think when it comes to this question of national security, um, Again, I'm, I'm a free market oriented person, so I don't really care where my shoes came from. I don't really care where my jacket comes from. I don't care where my tennis shoes come from. But I can guarantee you I'm not interested in buying my missile defense from the Soviets, and I don't care if they do have a comparative advantage on it. Fortunately, they don't, but if they did, I'd want us to build our own. Um, and I would argue the same thing is true with, with certain industries that are very important to us for our survival. Um, again, I don't think, I'm very free market oriented, but my commitment to the free market is not a suicide pact. And as a result, I'm willing to make exceptions when it needs to be made. And I would argue that the problem we have here is uh, if we allow, uh, well, right now, you know, Korea is one of the, the biggest producers. Uh, China is becoming a very big producer. They're, they're heavily subsidized. So I don't think that saying we're going to allow um, America to compete with that is going to do a lot of good because it's very hard for a business to compete with a government, particularly in the case of China where the, the business isn't even really a business. It's just an extension of the government. It is, in fact, part of their hegemonic approach to everything. These, these people would be happy, for example, to pay grain operators for the privilege of, you know, of delivering their grain up and down the Mississippi River to, to, to gain access to the river so they could have you know, thing, assets in place and spy and other things. No one else would ever do that, of course, but a, but a government that has this hegemonic goal would. And I think we do live in a world where there are some players, not all, 
but some players who are very dangerous and mean us harm. And it would be foolish for us to pretend that's not the case. Rob, a last point? So, so, so the biggest, I, I agree with you, by the way, on your assessment of the Chinese and, and you know, Chinese hegemony and all the rest of that kind of stuff. But um, this really isn't about that. Um, so let, let's take these, piece, these parts of the industry piece by piece, and we're talking the shipbuilders. So the shipbuilders had the opportunity in the 1990s to eliminate all subsidies in shipbuilding. Um, the the mid-tier of shipbuilders who build the tugs, the barges, the the uh, service vessels and all the rest of that wanted that treaty. They desperately wanted that treaty because they believe they can compete in an open market. It was killed by Ingalls and NASCO and all of the big shipyards because they did not believe they could compete in a non-subsidized world. Because despite the fact that we say they are not subsidized, they are subsidized. You're, you're an economist. You would consider the Jones Act a subsidy in any any other situation, it's a subsidy. Um, restricted markets are a subsidy. Uh, they had operating subsidies. They have now they have subsidies now to throw their ships into war, but they can substitute out that for a foreign ship if they want. So, you know, we are subsidized in our own way, and they didn't want to lose their own subsidies. The military is a subsidy. Um, our military ships cost way more than they ought to. There was a great study done in the 90s in the Clinton administration by the Defense Department of, um, of a DDG or a ship about that size. Um, the Brazilians took the plan and took it down there and they built it, and they built it on time and at less cost than it was predicted. And it, and it, it was because their system is not like ours. Our problem is we change orders, we do this. So um, it, it's the Chinese are bad, but um, this is not going to solve the Chinese problem. And, by the way, our defense treaties say we can buy and sell equipment from our allies. And so, George, to, to move to the next point, um, could you envision any domestic situation, um, whether it's a, a, a strong domestic shipbuilding industry um, or a, a different national security situation, where the Jones Act could be repealed? Um, well... So let's just say that everyone else in the world was like Canada and friendly, and we didn't have to worry about them. You know, and there's a world that doesn't actually exist, I suppose, but I think the reality is we have to accept the, the, the fact that there are the, you know, Iran's, the North Korea's, the China's, and quite frankly, a resurgent Russia with a, you know, former... KGB agent, you know, running it. Uh, and uh, they have plans. And I think it, it is, I have a lock on my front door. It's not because I don't trust my neighbors. I trust all my neighbors. It's other people I don't know about that I don't trust. And I feel like it would be foolish for me to say because my neighbor, Dave, across the street's a nice guy, I can ditch the lock. But what about this industry is different than all the others that don't have a, a similar protection, uh, like the Jones Act? Well, um, I think the, the real difference here is that this is, a, 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 this is a, a good that has many different possible uses. Missile defense does not. We don't buy our missile defense from other countries. If you look at who the contractors are that make our missile defense, they're all American companies. They're all American employees. In fact, it's illegal. There are times where uh, providers of services, even at NASA, you can't hire foreign nationals to do certain job-sensitive things at NASA. And we've, we've found spies where people broke the rules and hired a, for, a Chinese foreign national. What was he doing? He was spying. You know, so, I mean, th there's a reason why we have these rules. It's because we found that the sad experience is there are countries that are trying to do bad things, and we're trying to stop that. I would argue that because this is a shipbuilding industry, 
and you can use a ship to go you know, do all kinds of things on. You could, it could be a pleasure ship. I mean, I know they're built differently, but my point is a, a vessel in the water can be a warship, it can be a supply ship, it can be a pleasure ship, it can be a fishing ship, all kinds of different things. But, um, but the reality is our military needs to have that capacity, and I am not happy with the idea that we might just be relying on the goodwill of others to provide it for us. And I'll give you just a real quick example why. If, um, I'm, I'm going to let Rob respond. Okay, fair enough. Um, so I, I think what I hear you saying is that we cannot trust our allies to be providers of equipment, right, for the yeah. military? Uh, I, th I think that's a fair statement. I would um, agree with that. Uh, yeah. Not, not universally. Oh, oh. Well, that's okay. Oh, I'm asking him a yeah, question, he asked me, too. So I was just trying I'm, to I'm trying to think through his argument. So, um, so we can't trust them, yet we have, have or we had some pretty strong treaties, at least up to about two years ago, with NATO and some of our other allies, and that they may be weaker is not their fault. Um, we actually do buy equipment from them, and they buy equipment from us. Now, does that help American industry for them to buy? Of course it does, right? And I don't think you'd say the Canadians and the Europeans shouldn't be buying defense equipment from us. And I'd be willing to bet you wouldn't say, as an economist, we shouldn't be buying equipment from them either. Depends on the nature of the equipment. Okay, we buy componentry. So our, rock, our missiles have, have componentry from foreign countries. Um, we actually depend on um, some of their engineers for some of this. Um, so we're partners. So, you know, I get the part about not buying it from China, and, and mm -hmm. we should be tougher on that. But um, so I, I, I'm going to challenge you on the notion, and I don't really believe you really believe it, that we should not be partners in this kind of, uh, in, in building a military force and capability between all of our allies. So you can leave it at that. Quick response. Sure. Um, one of the reasons why most people buy uh, weapons and, and, and war material from us is because we produce among the best in the world. I, I, you know, and, uh, and because they want to be aligned with us, it helps them to have similar systems. I think there's an advantage in that sense, and I'm certainly for that. I think that's a, a helpful thing. But on a practical level, I'm not that excited about buying from other people. I don't mind buying certain components, parts. But the reality is I don't want to be dependent on other people. And the reason why I don't is very, I'll just give you a quick historical reason. We had two very close allies. Um, they're NATO members, members that we have hundreds of years of experience with and that we've pulled their bacon out of the fire more than once. And, uh, and yet when President Reagan wanted to run a retaliatory mission to Libya, they had to fly around Europe because two of our allies would not give us air. So that tells me that you can be, have a treaty with us, you can be on our side, you can agree with us on the general idea that terrorism is a bad, bad thing, but no, you can't fly over our country and we're not going to be... I don't want to be hamstrung like that. I don't want to leave that to chance. I think that protecting... You know, when I, when I protect my family... I don't leave it to that chance. I don't trust in the goodwill of somebody that I don't trust that my neighbor will come over and protect me from the bad guy. I think my neighbor's a great guy. I like him a lot. But I'm not going to leave my family's safety to someone else who's less invested than I am. And I think as a country, we have to take the same position. So it's a dangerous world. So, um, Rob, what uh, the, the Jones Act has been a political third rail for... Yeah years, um, and with it having been in place for nearly 100, what has changed um, in the last 20 years or even sooner that would lead you to believe that there can be that change or that the rationale behind it? You, you seem to have been saying that the rationale behind it initially was flawed. 
Yeah. But that flawed rationale has withstood the test of time. What's going to, to lead to a different outcome? Well, that's sort of a political question. By the way, I, I think, George, what you're saying flies in the face of military strategy today, and Joint Chiefs and all the rest would say that they believe in an integrated um, warfare, not just in the U.S., in, which is a particular type of strategy, integrated warfare, but they also believe in the integration of the allies, in, and we've never gone to a war without allies. So I, I, I think it probably flies in the face of that. I'll tell you what's different. Um, what's different is that we have no fleet. We have no domestic fleet. We have no, um, no Jones Act fleet. We have a handful of mariners. Uh, we have no capability to support the military. And, and what occurred that made that clear was the Gulf War. And at the time, I was U.S. Federal Maritime Commissioner, and I was involved with Trans Transportation Command, which one of these guys may or may not have been. Um, I had access to data and everything else, and it was pretty clear to me after uh, three days that there were very few American vessels in the fight, and this just flew in the face of so-called dogma of the Jones Act. You know, the Jones Act is, we're going to have a vast and mighty fleet and a cadre of young mariners to go do it. And, oh, by the way, these shipyards are churning out ships um, in peacetime so that they have capability in war. Well, that war was over in days. So they wouldn't have churned out anything. They couldn't even have walked over to put the plans on a deck in that time. So I think reality was what changed it, okay? We dropped from, from something like 40,000 vessels in 1950 to 15 or so, 15,000 you know, in the 60s to a handful today. You know, we're maybe a, in the 100 plus or minus and 300 the other. So we, we have almost no container ship capacity. Uh, we're not the guys building the big ships for the, for the U.S. flag. Uh, we're not the, and by the way, the Jones Act, the, the ship building component is unique almost in the planet. You know, there are only a handful of countries that have it, you know, big active countries like Poland, you know, shipping countries like that. Um, most people allow you to buy your ship at the market price and they, they have less restrictive everything else. But um, the manning issue is the real issue. We actually need a fleet. If the military needs sea lift capacity, they don't have it. They don't have it. They have subsidy programs, it's not gonna get it. The main subsidy program they have today is Visa. Visa is paid to American flag carriers, and it essentially allows them to hire foreign flag carriers to carry the cargo in a war. But we're paying them to do it. Um, it you know, it reminds me, it's like the Civil War, you could be drafted, but you could hire someone else to do your job for you. That's what it is uh, in reality. So we don't have ships, we don't, and therefore the billets are declining, we don't have sailors, and, and none of this is contributing anything to shipyards. That's what has changed. Politically, I'm gonna read you a list real quick and I'm gonna shut up because I know he wants to get on it. But um, uh, politically, well, let's see, I can't find the list, but it, it's the amount of money that goes into the maritime industry is uh, unbelievable. I think um, in the last political campaign, um, Clinton got a couple hundred thousand dollars, Trump got $90,000. Um, in the congressional races, Steve Scalise, there's a list of the top 10, you know, in open secrets, you go there and you'll see exactly who's getting all the money. Um, that's why nothing's happening yet. Response? Um, well, I think as to money, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know that $90,000 gets you much other than a return call if you're running for president, just yeah. when they spend billions of dollars on, on campaigns. I know it sounds like a lot of money to me, but if someone gave me $90,000, that would make my day. But, um, but, you know, 
we can have a conversation about the influence of money in politics, and that's fine. But uh, as I see it, the real issue is what I when I hear it, when I hear the the problems in the industry being blamed on the Jones Act, it almost sounds like he's arguing we need more Jones Act, not less. <laughs> uh, and um, you know, I, I don't know. I think the reality is. Um, if we're going to have a, a ship repairing industry, um, it doesn't have to be the biggest. It just has to exist. And I think that's what matters. I would also argue, uh, if you look at someone like Great Britain, Great Britain used to be the greatest naval power on the planet, the greatest shipbuilding nation on the planet. They recently bought tankers and they had to go to another country to buy them. And because they were backlogged, they uh, couldn't get them for a while, and it, just, it was kind of interesting to me to see a country that went from less than 100 years ago to being the greatest naval power on Earth to being forced to go somewhere else trying to find someone who can build their ships for them. I don't think that that's a good policy for the United States. I don't think we can allow that to happen to ourselves. And given some of the, uh, the way certain other countries do it, um, we're, I mean... It's great to say we'll compete with them, but when the government is actually doing it, if someone asked, you know, why don't we do this other other industries? I would argue if, if governments are competing, and in some cases you could argue they are, with some of our other manufacturers, we may have to do something to protect them because a government, you can't compete with the government. They can tax and they can levy and they can do things that a, that a business can't do. And we have to make sure that our American businesses are viable. Uh, quick last word. So, so we've done a number of things to try to compete. Um, the, the government has tried to do a number of things to try to compete uh, in these kinds of restricted markets. For example, um, we have a, uh, the Clinton administration revived a government um, subsidy for buying uh, U.S. built ships. Uh, I think we sold three ships. They were bought by, uh, uh, I can think of the guy's name, but I can't pronounce it. It's 15 or 20 Greek letters. Um, but a Greek, and he rejected them when he looked at them because they were so poorly built. They were built down here in, in uh, Virginia. The, um, uh, um, the, uh, uh, we, have, um, we have all sorts of kinds of things to try to help the maritime industry. It really hasn't done it. We've tried operating subsidies. We've tried labor subsidies. We've tried uh, uh, construction subsidies. We've tried um, any kind of subsidy. We've tried it here, and, and the problem is we don't have the markets. Um, we've destroyed our markets uh, with the Jones Act um, by, by requiring, you, you would say this in any other market, George, that if you impose these conditions on any other industry, it would destroy the industry. It's done that. It's predictable. It was designed to move cargo off ships, and it has done it. And I would say we're, we're right at 5 o'clock, so I'm going to give you both a few minutes to uh, to give closing arguments, but I'll, I would also warn you, you are what is standing between the room and the reception. And the Hawaiian rum. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, because you gave the opening remarks first, Rob, why don't you start with the closing? I, I, I would say that um, I understand where George is coming from and the people who support it. They, they have benefited from this restrictive uh, law for um, really about 98 years, basically. Uh, and remember, the law was not intended to be a law governing the industry. And I have a quote here from, from uh, Senator Jones saying it wasn't really intended to keep out foreign ships. And it has not. It, it hasn't worked. If it, if it was intended for the national defense, it has failed. Um, it really wasn't intended for the national defense. It was intended to protect an industry. And there it succeeded. And the industry it protected, essentially, it was railroads. So 
um, you know, Walter, uh, you know, Senator Jones, Wesley Jones, all those years back was protecting constituent. That constituent has prospered in all these years, that industry, and everybody else has, has borne the cost. So it's a failure, and that's the problem. George? Well, um, you know, I look at the, uh, the railroad question. I, it's curious to me that um, railroads don't weigh in on this then, but, uh, you know, they should be the ones opposed to it. They are. I don't know that, well, I don't know that, I don't see them involved much, but I'll be honest, I, I know that from my perspective, I don't personally have a stake in the venture. I don't get money as a result of the Jones Act. It doesn't benefit me personally. I'm not, I just, I look at national security issues. I look at a variety of issues. So we do a lot of different things in Frontiers of Freedom. Um, as I've said, we're, we're interested in free markets. We're interested in, uh, in, in free trade. Those are things that matter to us. But we do draw a line when it comes to our national security. We just don't believe it makes sense to have the economic principles that's work most of the time and are very reliable and very important to have that become a suicide pact. Um, and, and to me, it, you can argue that the... Um, that the Jones Act is the reason our shipping industry has dwindled. But I would argue the reason our shipping industry has dwindled is because of the increasing players that heavily subsidize their ships. And they've had the, it seems to me kind of odd that the Jones Act is responsible and not the, those things. If someone's offering goods at half price because someone else is going to pick up the price, it, it doesn't surprise me it sells a lot. But bottom line is, um, I just get back to where I started. One, I, our, the idea that uh, a cabotage law is some sort of, uh, you know, problem for, you know, as big government, people who are not big government people, people who signed the Constitution, they made it the fourth act they passed. I would argue the Jones Act is, if you will, a logical progeny of that. Again, Adam Smith made the same arguments uh, when he, in The Wealth of Nations, the father of free market e economics. It's easy to say that's different, but I, you know, John, the, the truth is Adam Smith believed that markets were a way to make grit Britain great because trade and free markets would make them economically powerful. But he also knew that they had to have a Navy and they had to have that capacity. And so he's willing to make an exception. And I'm with Adam Smith on that. And then finally, I would uh, just point out that uh, on a practical basis, Things like homeland security uh, to me matter. Before uh, 9-11, I didn't really appreciate it. I just saw national security. Homeland security was not really in my uh, uh, gaze. But I think it's very helpful to have uh, a crew, American crews all over the place in that inner, you know, on the inland waterways defending and, and keeping an eye open for problems and irregularities. And to me, that's the real benefit. If everyone can join me in thanking Rob and George for taking part in this today.